0: Uh, the reason why is that Job is a very close book, as much as Ecclesiastes is to me. Um, the reason I chose that particular passage for the scripture reading, uh, in light of today's sermon on Ecclesiastes two one through eleven, I want you to think about our insignificance. Um, think about the insignificance of the creature. Right as we close uh, this particular section of Ecclesiastes, we want to think about our limitations. We want to think about how we are powerless to prescribe meaning or enjoy anything apart from God granting that to us. Yet, somehow, some way, we decide that we want to go after it on our own means. And we think that we actually can. And what we end up finding out is what I think we'll discover today. What I have entitled The futile greatness. Please take a uh, message for me. Um, Yeah. So the futility of greatness. Why would I say futile greatness? Well, we'll see. Solomon's life was filled with incredible greatness. The things that he had accomplished and the things that he had went after. And what he was capable of doing was, was pretty impressive. But in the end, what did he note it to be? Futile under the sun. Remember, as we go through the course of this book, we're dealing with Two groups of people that live under the sun and where vanity reigns, the wicked and the God-fearers. There's a message in Ecclesiastes for both. One for a call to repentance. I believe it's what I've referred to it as and others have the gospel according to Solomon. Right? If you want to know a foundation, a true and sure foundation for calling uh, people to repentance who do not believe the gospel. This is you can use Ecclesiastes as your apologetic tool to confront unbelief and the end thereof. And on the other side of it, for the for the righteous, for those who are in Christ, for those God fearers, it's a tool of sanctification for us, isn't it? Over the course of the last few weeks, I mean, I've been <laughs> really pressed myself personally as I've been examining these texts and going through them and thinking about them and listening to them, of really how far astray I can in my mind quickly go and I'm sure you guys have all kind of experienced the same thing so hopefully uh, for those who claim Christ as their Lord and Savior today this is a blessing to you let me say this for those who do not listen very carefully to what Solomon has to say about life under the sun and hopefully you guys are uh, taking the time to do a single sitting listening or, or reading of Ecclesiastes to really capture the the full expression of the theme and the continuity of the argument I believe he's making, my encouragement to you would be to do that for the benefit of going and working through this more closely as we go through the sermons together. Um, so why, why read from Job? <laughs> why read from Job this morning as it relates to what Solomon's is going to share in pursuing meaning in various things? Note Job's response, right? And no, notice uh, how, what Satan's challenges were in the same. How did Satan challenge God? He asked, he said, does Job fear God for no reason? Right? You bless everything he does. You put a hedge of protection around him. You cover him. No one can touch him. So what he's saying is, Lord, of course Job fears you. <laughs> you, you bless his life. You fill it with abundance. Certainly remove those things and he'll curse you right to your face. Right? What happened? God said, oh, okay. Okay go right on ahead and then he he turned around and said you know you can take everything and when you read those passages i mean it's heart wrenching when you think about what god allowed satan to strip from him i mean it's one servant after another just telling him hey man i barely got away with my life and everything was destroyed it was all wiped out this came in and this happened and fire from heaven that's like can you imagine that like fire from heaven came <laughs> destroyed wiped out your livestock A wind blew and killed your children and two different people groups came in and wiped out everything that you had. If that were to happen to most people today, I'd venture to say you'd probably curse God to His face. I know people right now, presently, who question the character of God because certain things didn't pan out in their lives the way they would have hoped. We've all wrestled and struggled with that probably in some way, shape, or form, right? We really wanted this thing. We wanted to work out this way. We put all of our time, energy, and effort into this thing that we did or do and it didn't work out the way we would have hoped and then we turn around and go dude are you kidding me right now which is exactly why i used asap's complaint man lord i have walked in righteousness for no reason before you it's a waste of time look how you bless the hands of the wicked my goodness and then we could point to job and use asap's complaint look what you did to job why should any man serve and worship you? My goodness, God, you have a great way of caring for your those who love you, right? You smoke them. At any given you know, we don't even know like what, what might come of our lives. You might take one person, you know, a marriage, you have a wonderful marriage together, and you lose your, your beloved companion at, at a young age. Or someone is, you know, destroyed, um, their lives are destroyed by some business venture, strip everything away. A whole family, you lose half your family in a car accident. Think about it, like all these horrible things that happen. And these are people who say, well, Lord, why, what benefit or profit is it to worship you? Oh, look, at, look at how the wicked are prospering. We can see what's going on in Hollywood right now. Gosh, for, for goodness sakes, look what's going on in politics right now? It seems as though as we look around us, we could complain with Asaph very very easily and go, Lord, why is it meaningful to worship you? And what? It, how did Asaph respond? Not until I entered the house of the Lord did I understand their end. I was corrected by entering in the house of the Lord. Hopefully, we bring some correction today in the house of God for trying to ascribe meaning in things under the sun that we have no place in prescribing meaning to or trying to find meaning from. So when you think about those texts, think about these things. Here's a couple fun quotes from people trying to describe what the meaning of life is. Charles Schulz has to say, my life has no purpose, no direction, no aim, no meaning, and yet I'm happy. I can't figure it out. What am I doing right? It's hilarious. Henry Miller says, life has to be given meaning because of the obvious fact that it has no meaning. Life has to be given meaning because of the obvious fact that it has no meaning. Interesting thoughts there, Mr. Miller? You guys may be familiar with this character, Friedrich Nietzsche. He said in his thoughts on the prejudices of morality, doubt as sin. Christianity has done its utmost to close the circle and declare it even doubt to be sin. One is supposed to be cast into belief without reason, by a miracle, or from then on to swim in it. It is as in the brightest and least ambiguous of elements. Even a glance towards land, even a thought that one perhaps exists for something else as as well as swimming, even the slightest impulse of our amphibious nature is sin. And notice that all this means that the foundation of belief and all reflection on its origin is likewise excluded as sinful. What is wanted are blindness and intoxication and an eternal song over the waves in which reason has drowned. Thank you, Mr. Nietzsche. Fantastic thoughts there. How about Christopher Hitchin? You guys are familiar with this character. Maybe. Let's see what he has to say. If you're not familiar with Christopher Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens, he's one of the, the four horsemen of the great atheists today who combat Christianity. He recently passed away. I think it was from throat cancer. And uh, he had this to say about the meaning of life, trying to find and search for the meaning of life. About once or twice every month, I engage in public debates with those who, pressing, need it is to woo and to win the approval of supernatural beings... Very often when I give my view that there is no supernatural dimension and certainly not one that is only or especially available to the faithful and that the natural world is wonderful enough and even miraculous enough if you insist, I attract pitying looks and anxious questions. How, in that case, I am asked, do I find meaning and purpose in life? How does a mere and gross materialist with no exception of a life to come, decide what, if anything, is worth caring about. Well, let's find out what Hitchens has to say. Depending on my mood, I sometimes, but not always, refrain from pointing out what a breathtakingly insulting and patronizing question this is. It's on par with the equally subtle inquiry, since you do not believe in our God, what stops you from stealing and lying and raping and killing to your heart's content? Just as the answer to the latter question is self-respect and a desire the respect of others, while in the meantime it is precisely those who think they have divine permission who are truly capable of any atrocity. So the answer to the first question falls in two parts. A life that partakes even a little of friendship, love, irony, humor, parenthood, literature, and music, and the chance to take part in battles for liberation of others cannot be called meaningless, except if the person living it is also an existentialist and elects to call it so. It could be that all existence is a pointless joke. It could be that all existence is a pointless joke, but it is not, in fact, possible to live one's everyday life as if this were so. Whereas, if one sought to define meaninglessness and futility, the idea that human life should be expended in the guilty, fearful, self-obsessed propitiation of supernatural non-entities... But they're there enough. Thank you, Mr. Hitchens, for nothing. Because it all could be meaningless. But do note something interesting about each one of these characters. What are they saying? There is some meaning in what Christopher Hitchens is saying. You know what's really interesting? Every single one of them ascribe meaning to something. And they expect you to take what they had to say as meaningful. Yet it was all meaningless. It's very interesting how that works. Very interesting how that works. So what about Solomon? How did Solomon attempt to find meaning? Turn to chapter 2 in Ecclesiastes and let's work through verses 1 through 11. Let's see if we can find out. Okay. He said in his heart in verse 1, <laughs> think about it. Imagine him saying this, you know, to himself. He says, Come now and I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. He's like, Yeah, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. He's literally having an inter. A personal conversation within himself, in his heart. Let's go after it. Let's enjoy ourselves for a moment, huh? Shall we? Consider all the things that we try to find enjoyment and meaning in, right? But it never really cuts it. That's what I think Solomon's getting at. You know, we, we, we have this one thing. And I know we've all said this, right? Just think about these things he signed. It usually starts this way. But if I only had this, then maybe I would be happy. If this were to happen or occur, then maybe I could find more meaningful. If only I had this job instead of this one, I, it would be more meaningful. Think about all the things that we attach that meaningful word to. What I'm doing right now is not really that meaningful. I feel useless. I feel like I could be, you know, I could experience more things, enjoy more things, but it never really works out or pans out. It doesn't really cut it, right? We even often perceive it in others. We believe and think that they're experiencing it, but they really aren't. Right? Asaph. What was Asaph's concern with? Man, the wicked, blessed, got Ferraris, living in sweet houses, hooked up, rich, beyond our wildest dreams, doing what they love, singing, acting, Right? Doing this sweet job in aerospace. It's another really cool job in the military, right? And the perception is what, man, they're really living it up, aren't they? Man, they have a real meaningful life. Mine is this dreary, gotta go to this dead end nine to fiver every week and just barely make ends meet. But I worship the God, the God of the universe, who is the king, owns the fattened cows on a thousand hills, right? Uh, who could bless me, but is not? Why? You bless the wicked, the perverse. They seem to have it all, and I'm miserable. Anybody in the room experienced that? I'm sure you have in some way, shape, or form. You look on people with this thing called envy. You envy other people's lives. You envy their cars. You envy their houses, their clothes, and whatever else you can envy. Their sweet technologies, right? And then this thing happens where we do the best we can to try to get those things. Maybe we can't afford them, so we start extending our credit lines and other things, right? We try to do this thing called keeping up with the Joneses. This is what happens. Because why? We are trying to build and develop meaning in our life. If I only had that or I had this or that, covetousness breeds envy, and envy breeds in us a desire to find meaning in things that we can never find meaning in. But I only had that body. I go to the gym 15 times a week. Think about it. You can add, you can fill in the blank as much as you What's interesting is, he, as uh, Solomon points out in uh, chapter one, there's always something lacking about it. There's something crooked about it. It never really brings true satisfaction. I pursue it, I pursue it, I pursue it. And, I, and then I get, in some cases, you might have experienced where you actually get it. You know, you get the thing that you really were working hard for and you pushed really hard to get it. And then here you are, you finally have it and you're like, dude, nobody's staring in my sweet ride. (laughs) Nobody likes my sweet kicks, right? Hey, check it out. Look at my sweet kicks, my clothes, right? My prominence in this job. Nobody's given me the the recognition that I would have really hoped for. I worked so hard for all that. And then I finally have it. And then it's really in the end, meaningless. You're like, dang, I really pushed really hard for that meaninglessness, really hard. And within that, What's interesting, uh, in, in the pursuit of all these things, we have a limited type lifespan, don't we? So they're really, we, we have all these things that we would like to accomplish. We want to pursue these things and try to find meaning in them. And in the, in, the, in the end of all, we can't possibly do everything that we would like to do. Some people live with, remember, regret from last week. They live with the regret that they never were able to accomplish the thing that they would have hoped to do in their life. Or they live with regret that they so pursued the things that they desired to put meaning in that they neglected the more important thing, like their family. They built their whole life around this job, this career, this ministry, this thing. And then they neglected the more important thing at the end, and they live with regret to their deathbed, wondering why in the world did I do all that? This was where the meaning really was. I think that's what Solomon's trying to get after here. So what did he he pursue it in? Look at verse 2. He said, uh, I, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? <laughs> Wait a minute. The use in developing meaning, of course, like people would say, laughter is great. It's a great thing. Some who um, don't hold to God's sovereignty would say, if you laugh, you live longer, right? People who laugh are healthier and they live longer. Not true. You could laugh all day long and die tomorrow in a car <laughs> from a heart attack, from laughing. Um, you could, <laughs> you could, you um, could, try to pursue pleasure to its ends and finding meaning and you really won't find it there's really no use in pleasure but it is pleasurable it is pleasurable but it's it's not useful for finding meaning we try to cheer ourselves up by laughing and pursuing all sorts of pleasures but in the end of it it produces nothing but lasting uselessness is what solomon's really getting at so you know we go to you know comedy we watch comedy or we go to a live show you know maybe I'll cheer myself up and find this meaning in this laughter think about um the kind of uh, the kind of comedians people are entertained with are some of the most miserable people on the planet aren't they I think of guys like i just looked up famous comedians just did a google search and I'm like let's find some super miserable people <laughs> of this group of people are there really anybody in this group of people that aren't miserable and don't complain a ton and really that's what comes out in joking we all laugh together because we're experiencing a very similar thing we understand what they're going through or what they're talking about Think of these kind of people and immediately what comes to your mind. For anyone out there who knows George Carlin, what was George Carlin known for? Oh boy. This character did a lot of complaining. But what's interesting about comedians is that he did a lot of political stuff and pointed out inconsistencies and stuff. But George Carlin was an ardent atheist. Had a lot to say about God, about Christians and how stupid they are. And this guy did nothing but nonstop complain. complain. I have... To my shame, laughed at George Carlin jokes. (laughs) But what's interesting is why would people pay a man like George Carlin to make them laugh? Is because they want to be in a group of people who kind of all agree together. Yeah, that's true. They want to reaffirm their beliefs. And as they say, misery loves company, doesn't it? So where do they find the meaning? By surrounding themselves with a bunch of people laughing at stuff that they all agree with. Think about that. Here's another one. Dave Chappelle. We laugh just at his name. That dude's hilarious, right? I can think of a number of horrible things that Dave Chappelle says that are really funny. He points out inconsistencies in cultures, like racism. He does a lot of stuff on race. Um, He came from Saturday Night Life, right? A group of Saturday Night Think about that guy. One of the most world-famous comedians of all time, by the way. Brilliant man. But in terms of What he jokes about, think about the kind, why would people set Dave Chappelle up for their own entertainment? What are they laughing at? Why is it so funny? Here's another one. Robin Williams. Robin Williams was an incredible entertainer. Right? Lots of movies. Fantastic comedian, right? Anybody know what happened to Robin Williams at the end of his life? He killed himself. Because he was so miserable. Rodney Dangerfield, for those older ones out there who remember him. No respect, right? Got no respect. Nobody respects me. <laughs> yeah, no respect. Gosh, right? Guy was hilarious, but one of the most miserable people on the planet. Look up his life. Do a, do a bi- biographical research of of uh, his upbringing and his life. Interesting. Sam Kinison. Anybody remember him? Oh boy, uh, that guy killed himself as a heart attack, and it doesn't surprise me the way that his 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 certain uh, acts that he did. This guy. Was uh, again probably one of the most miserable people on the planet. The guy screamed, right? I won't do it right now to spare you, but anybody look up the Sam Kinison scream, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, You can be spared not listen to it, but why did I bring up Sam Kinison? He was also an incredibly miserable person that what people paid to set them up to be entertained, to find meaning in a certain sort of joking, right? A platform for joking. But he was addressing certain characteristics of the culture and the time. And George Burns, for those even old. If you guys remember, George Burns, uh, in, in a movie played God. Right? George Burns was an atheist and died facing God. Think about, um, anybody watched Saturday Night Live for a period of time? Like, especially the older ones, right? What's really interesting, notice this, next time you think about comedians and you think about shows, night shows like Saturday Night Live, These people are almost prophets of their age. In a way, in such a way, they're so shrewd and they're so sharp that they have a pulse on the spirit of the age. It's almost like they're embodied by the spirit of the age. And they have a way of pointing out things in society. They have a way of pointing out things about ourselves, about others, about cultures, politics, you name it. And these people have an amazing way of exploiting those things and everyone laughs in an audience. And it's also a situation, think about this in terms of laughter, where, you know, we're, again, we're paying to be there, where we get to escape for a brief moment. And these people get to say things that they would never, ever say, usually in any other platform. And everyone laughs about it. The things that they talk about are disgusting, <laughs> vile. The kind of language that they use is really disrespectful. Yet people laugh and they often laugh because they're super uncomfortable with the person saying and they know it and they even pick people in the audience and they start exploiting them and everybody thinks it's hilarious and they go home. And what happens to the end of that? They went to go find meaning in this particular experience to laugh and joke with others who are like minded because they pick certain comedians that fit kind of what they find humorous and what ends up happening at the very end of it. Are they satisfied? They go to find another show, don't they? They go to find the next comedian. Most of these people, um, aside from uh, George Carlin's dead, Robin Williams is dead, Rodney Dangerfield's dead, Sam Kennison's dead, George Burns is dead, and Dave Chappelle is the only one left on this list that's not dead. Uh, But the man is dead inside. And he's paid millions for it. People invest in what they love. I like what Proverbs 14.13 says. It says, even in laughter the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. Think of that. Your heart might ache even at the end of laughter. You might, you might still be wrestling and struggling. You might have great joy, but still be grieving. It's never really satisfying. Nothing really comes from it. You could try to escape grief by laughing, but the grief is always still there. There's nothing you can do to escape this grief and vice versa, right? Right? You can try to find joy in it, but it'll never come. Why? So then he says, well, that's vain. Won't do that. He set himself up. You imagine Solomon probably had some serious cash roll, right, to pay for some awesome comedians, and uh, that didn't work out for him, right? What do you say? Verse 3, I searched within my heart then to cheer my body with wine. My my, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom, though. Right? And then how to lay hold of folly. I want to get a grasp on this folly thing till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So in acknowledging this limited span of life that I have, I'm going to go after some wine. (laughs) That'll make me happy. Maybe alcohol could bring some lasting joy. Maybe alcohol can provide some meaning. Maybe that'll work for me. Anyone ever said that? Oh, yeah. Ever have an issue And you're like, and it's funny, like we even make jokes about that to go back with the previous one where where moms, stay at home moms out there, stay at home moms, where you're like, it's wine hour, it's wine 30, (laughs) been a day, right? (laughs) And then we laugh and joke about it. That's hilarious. Why? What are we saying? Well, we're trying to find meaning in some wine right now. I need to relax. I need to gladden my heart, which are all biblical things, Right. But then what ends up happening is people take it a step further and go, the only way I can find meaning in my life is by pursuit of alcohol. And that is the difference, my friends, between a blessing from God and a curse. Someone who pursues drunkenness as the end and the means. The means to the end itself. Drunkenness is the pattern of their life because the only way that they can cope with what's going on, they can laugh, they can enjoy anything, is by the pursuit of the bottle. I can't make sense of reality apart from it, as a matter of fact. It goes so far that their bodies need it in order to continue on and go. They they try to find meaning there. Some believe that that's all that's valuable. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Hey, listen, guys. Like The only thing in life that will really provide any sort of meaning is just enjoy the moment as it were. Eat, drink, be merry, and for tomorrow we die because that's it. There's nothing after. You remember the the song that I, I quoted last week, right? hey, don't worry, there's nothing before you nor after you, and soon you'll be gone and you'll be really gone. (laughs) It doesn't matter. So just enjoy what you have right now. And part of that would be, go with all the gusto you got. Eat, drink, and be merry merry for tomorrow you die. Some spend their entire lives building a career around it, right? They might be a sommelier, those who are very passionate about knowing and understanding everything and little aspects about wine. A cicerone. that's a beer sommelier, right? They might be a vintner. They might be a brewer. Might be a vendor. Might be a salesperson. Might be a distributor. Might be a farmer. Every bit and ounce of their life is surrounded by producing this thing to find meaning in it. Some gone all the way up to the master's level of Cicerone. If anybody's watched um, a really great movie on that, it's called Psalm. Anybody seen Psalm? Amazing movie. It's about uh, a group of guys who go through this process together. to become the highest level, and there is only like a, it's under a hundred. I mean, it might even be under fifty of this tier of sommelier in the world. So, where someone that they call it on a whiff, where they could take a a, a a glass of wine and they could whiff it and know what type of wine it is, they can know the vintage of the wine, they can even know the region of the wine, off a whiff, and even the year in some cases. That's impressive. You have dedicated and devoted your entire life to be able to, on a whiff, know those things, right? And it's interesting, uh, in that movie, um, there were some people who quit, and they just were like, what am I doing this for? <laughs> or they'd graduated, they'd arrived, right? And they expected and wanted all of this you know, reputation, and fame even in some cases. And they went to go basically work at a restaurant pairing foods with a chef. That's really neat, but only for a time. Is that really awesome? Are trying to find meaning in other things now. So you might build your whole career around alcohol. There are some who are always working for the weekend. Everybody's working for the weekend. You know that song? What are they trying to do? Find the party and a new romance. Good 80s song. But it's true. Think about how many songs are surrounded, both country and, you know, some 80s pop action about alcohol and what it does and how to find meaning in life from it and how to solve life's problems from it. I mean, their entire industries would have lost all of their money if, that, if they really came to the conclusion Solomon did. Think about it, right? Alcohol is a very important thing. What, is, what does the Scripture have to say? Well, wine is a mocker. Proverbs 21, right? Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Solomon learned these things, didn't he? Woe to those, as Isaiah says, who rise early in the morning... Isaiah 5.11, that they may run after strong drink who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. And as Brother Greg always likes to quote this within the same context, they are heroes of wine and strong drink. They are the heroes, the ones who can outdrink them all. But really what ends up happening in the end? They get beat up by it, don't they? Bad. Their bodies get destroyed. They lose their livelihood their families, everything. It ends up stripping everything away. The very thing that they sought to find meaning in ends up stripping all the meaning away from them. Then Solomon goes on to say, he says, I made great works in verses 4-6. through He says, I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. Now that's pretty impressive. Uh, Think about that. like What that would have taken in the time that he did it in right? What was it, around 700 B.C.? What kind of energy, labor force that would have taken? But what's interesting is think about all that we labor to to produce eventually breaks down. Where's all of Solomon's stuff now? Like think about the temple that he made, the first temple. What what happened to that? It was destroyed, completely wiped out. Where are all of his pools, his sweet forests, his fruit trees? Where Where is his lavish wealth? Where is it? He worked his whole life to a mass. Where is his world renown now? What can we physically see of it? Nothing but ruins for the most part. Nothing but ruins. So I built personally, I built and remodeled homes for a long time. I did that starting when I was really young. There, it's interesting to think that there are probably some homes that don't even exist anymore that I worked on. <laughs> Has anybody built a home? Built a home? Built a home? How long does a home last? I've had to replace my roof. My home was built in like 2007. I've already had to replace my roof. My dishwasher just broke. Things are breaking down. A drawer fell apart as we tried to open it the other day. It's supposed to be a nice house. Right? Think about that. Things just fall apart, don't they? You buy these sweet things and they fall apart. Houses. Remodeling. As a project manager, have you ever done remodeling for someone? Ever done remodeling for someone? You've had a lot of remodeling done. But have you done it for someone? No? Guess what? No one's ever satisfied. Ever. Ever. You go in there, I'll never forget as a project manager, they got these big dreams, these big ideas. You walk in, you know, the salesperson sold them those dreams and those big ideas, and then I got to be the guy who grounds them back into reality again. Come walking in and they're like, what are you doing? Taking measurements, marking the walls and stuff. And I'm like, uh oh, change order. Gonna have to put an electrical outlet there for that sweet new appliance you bought. They didn't put that in there. Oh, there's an extra $500, $1,500, because we got to go through a stud now. Oh, gosh, $3,000, right? And you're just like, pching, 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 ching right? <laughs> they hated me. They hated me. I'm not kidding you. I had a lady one time. We were trying to get a final check from her. I walk into this amazing kitchen, you guys. We're talking like a museum piece. This thing. I have a picture of it somewhere. It is incredible. It was used actually in the gallery for the, the company that I worked for um, to, to pitch future projects. I'm not kidding you. This, this lady was a horrible, horrible person to work with. Never satisfied. We're at the very end, and I personally brought my own tools, my own touch-up kits, and brought it in there, and I said, all right, man, let's go for it. I'm going to write the punch list out. I'm going to get this knocked out for you, and then you've got to pay. That's my job, too. I've got to collect that final check. Because when I meet with the managers every morning and the owners of the company, you know what they're asking me? Not like, how are you doing? They're saying, where's the money? It's like I'm enemies on both sides of the fence, right? The owners always want their money. Owners of houses are never happy. How do I figure this out? I walk into this project. I kid you not. She's like super flustered, frustrated. She turns the corner. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I turn the corner and there she is on her hands and knees. I wish I had a picture of that. This epic kitchen, right? And she is looking underneath the cabinet and she's like, there are nail holes that have not been puttied under this baseboard. Okay, at the time, just kind of provide some context. I had returned from Africa just a few years earlier. You can ask my kids about my Africa stories when they don't want to eat something. What do I say? There are people starving to death in Africa. You need to eat your food. I was struggling with some, uh, you know, reverse culture shock this woman's here she is in her hands and I go you need to pay right now like now I'm not leaving this house until you pay she got all upset at me I'm like no no no, I don't want to hear it we don't putty those nails underneath the thing in the cabinet we're not putting anything I'm not doing anything anymore. you need to pay I'm getting my husband on the phone this this big old rigmarole with her right I got busted because this person's not satisfied come to find out it was their church friends the owners of the company's church friends And I went back and I said, you guys go to church together? Can you imagine, right? (laughs) I wasn't allowed to go back to their house. New project manager, everything changed, right? What am I trying to get out here? This woman, she said to me, she said, this is my life. This is where I live. This matters to me. Everything in this room matters to me from the little tiny 18 gauge pinholes from a pin nailer and the bottom of a cabinet that you can't you might not be able to see those but i can this matters to me this is where my meaning is this is all of my life this is where i spend the majority of my time and i want my kitchen done right woman you need to repent and pay your bills before we put a levy on your house is what i said i don't care i don't care so how do you think that went down? Well, yeah, I got pulled off the job. But that's the point, is that she was trying to find all of her value in what? It was all wrapped up in this kitchen, which, good grief, could burn down in two months. It was, you ready for the staggering number? This kitchen alone was $150,000. When you walked in there, you thought you were walking into some ancient built like the Louvre or something, or you know, uh, the Sistine Chapel, man. I mean, this thing had everything in it. Beautiful, beautiful woodwork. And hand-carved everything. A special sink sent from Italy. I mean, it was crazy what they spent on this kitchen. $150,000. Some people's houses aren't even worth that. <laughs> it's out of control, right? Yeah, and her whole meaning was wrapped up in that. I think about the things I've done and the work that I've done, and that really at the end of it all, is meaningless because she could lose all of that. Her husband loses her job, his job. And what happens? They have to sell the house. And what do you think happens to this woman's life when that kitchen goes away? He goes on to say in verse 7-8, uh, through eight, he says, How about I male and female slaves? I had slaves who were born even in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure and kings of provinces. I had singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delights of the sons of men. So now where are we at? Man, this dude had an incredibly vast labor force, basically to accomplish anything that he wanted to set his mind to. We're going to do this thing. We're going to build some sweet pools, water that forest, plant vineyards. We're going to build that. We're going to build the temple. We're going to build these things and expand it. I got all the money I ever need. We're going after it, and the, the labor force was growing in his own household. Slaves—they were being born in his house. He had all the food he could ever want: herds upon herds and flocks, right? He threw insane feasts. You guys should go back and read uh, in Kings and Chronicles the kind of feasts that, that Solomon threw, and, and some have done like the numbers of, of what it would take—the amount of food and the volume and the labor force just to throw the feast that this man threw. You should check it out. It's incredible. He had wealth beyond measure, epic entertainment, and sensual smorgasbords that were the envy of empires, right? To give you an idea, uh, according to 1 Kings 11.3, he had a 700 wives and 300 concubines. You couldn't possibly devote any time to one wife right? That necessary to, to satisfy your wife in a relationship, let alone 700. What kind of marital counseling did he get from the prophets? Right? Three hundred concubines—we know what those are for. That is incredible. And what does he say at the end? Ah, it's a waste of time, meaninglessness, right? He said, "So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Some would question that. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. I went after it, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil." And this was my reward for all my toils. So he's like, I accomplished these things. These things happened. I did what I wanted to do. I didn't restrain from anything, right? Then I considered that all my hands had done and the toil I expended doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Wait a second, Solomon. You had everything. Think of people in this world right now. I can think of a number of them, a handful of them. Who it would seem, like Bill Gates comes to mind, right? This guy has everything. He has anything that, that, that could be thrown at him. He he could pay for it and can make it happen. He really could. Nothing could be withhold withheld from him. Solomon was ten times, hundred times richer than Bill Gates. Is a man satisfied? Has he found meaning in his life? Interesting enough, what is what is uh he happily involved in? Finding cures for different things. How how to use technology to extend your life? How to even go, go as far as You know, trying to find cures for things like COVID, vaccines. He's huge in the vaccine world, interesting enough. There's a lot of money to be made there, isn't there? But he wants to try to pursue in some philanthropic way of returning back. Interesting enough, um, there's a a series, The Men Who Built America. Has anybody seen that? The Men Who Built America. It's a fantastic series. I encourage you guys to watch it. But what's really interesting, these men competed so hard to amass this wealth, and they had wealth they could never spend in, in a single lifetime. What did they end up doing? Guys like Carnegie uh, and others. He just, Carnegie comes to mind. First of all, what did they end up doing? They were competing with each other. For what? Being philanthropic. Who could give away the most money the fastest? Who could build the great halls, right? The Carnegie Music Hall comes to mind. And all these other museums and stuff like that. They became philanthropic in those ways. They wanted to set themselves up um, to not be forgotten in the future. Many people in this room probably don't even know who those people are. Nor do they care, and nor should they really, it doesn't matter. Except for they were one part of a very big part of history, you know, one small part of a huge, vast history of people who have worked to amass wealth, and in the end of it all, it goes away. So in the end of it, what is the gospel application for these things? What should the wicked be concerned about? And What should the god be concerned about? The proverb that comes to mind, it's in Proverbs 14 and in 16, it says, there's a way that seems right to men, but in the end, its way is death. There's a way that seems right in our mind, a way that we should be pursuing things. All these people have one thing in common, the comedians, the wealthy, Solomon. There's a way that seems right, but its way ends in death. Everything that we pursue and everything that we do and we attempt to try to place meaning in anything that God has not placed meaning in is death. The end of Proverbs 8 says, if you hate wisdom, you love death. Those who hate me love death. And where's wisdom found? In God's Word. You depart from God's Word. You will be incapable of placing meaning into anything. And you will discover, no matter how hard you pursue it, no matter what pleasures you attempt to seek, no matter what kind of gain, no matter what you want to build, you will find in the end of it all, death. Death in the end. And and sadly, face your Creator and give an account for such. says it's appointed in Scripture for man to die. And then what? Face the judgment. You will have to face your Creator And explain to him why is it that you wasted your entire life rejecting his meaning and seeking to do what was right in your own eyes. You will die. Don't be envious of the wicked, saints. Don't be envious of the wicked. Don't be envious of their gain. Don't be envious of anything, material wealth, maybe wisdom, stature, prominence. Don't be envious of them. Like Asaph, return to the house of God and discover the end of their ways. Be like Job if you were to have everything stripped from you as we sung today in Psalm 62. right? The Lord is good even if He were to take everything away. Be ready and prepared for that at any given moment. And if you're not, here's what's happened. You have anchored some meaning in that thing. More so than what's most important, meaning in Christ. Who we are in Christ. We should be able to ready, and it's terrifying to think of this. That's why it's really nerve-wracking to read Job. Is that in any given moment, the Lord could strip things away all that we hold precious, all that we hold dear materially. And He can also destroy our bodies at any given moment. He can strip away everything. And if you've placed meaning in those things, your heart has been led astray because what will truly happen, how you respond to that will really let you know exactly where your heart's at. Those things get stripped and it was, uh, but my heart was really anchored in that idol. That's idolatry. We have to be able to discern there. We know that those who are far from God will perish ultimately in the end. That's, what's, that's what the Asaph noticed. He puts an end to everyone who is unfaithful. For us, it's good to be near God. We need to make the Lord with Asaph our refuge that we may tell of all of His works. For we know that Jesus said in John 14, and everybody can quote this in this room probably, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. There is no way to find meaning apart from that. Let's close them. Heavenly Father, I just pray you be blessed by the teaching of Your Word that, Lord, we would seek to weed out those things that we may be placing meaning in that really are meaningless. It's You that gives us meaning for everything. That we would seek to bless Your heart with the works of our hands. That we would bless You in terms of the pattern, the way of our life, because You are the truth. do we let these things be wrestled out of us. We know that Your Holy Spirit promises to do that in us. That You will convict us, Spirit of God, of sin and unrighteousness, of idolatry, of these things that we sought to place meaning in that don't deserve it. Only You get to place meaning in anything. And then by doing so, we'll find great joy in embracing that. I pray You bless the time, rest of our time of worship together. Enjoy.